Well, hello, my friends. Welcome to the Friday broadcast of Hope for Your Heart. This is Pastor Calvin Corbett. And in the broadcast today, I want to cover the subject of our Christian duty. Now, you've probably heard this story. There was a security breach in Washington, D.C. several years ago. And uh, a man jumped the fence that surrounds the White House and sprinted through to the main floor of the building. And I could have caused much greater commotion, but he was stopped by an off-duty Secret Service agent. And uh, that guy was leaving for the night, and the intruder was tackled outside of the green room by this agent. Well, one person said, there's no telling how long this guy could have run around if the detail guy hadn't happened to be there. Uh, So this guy realized, I'm never really off-duty. You know, as Christians, we are always on duty. We're never completely off duty. So we're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 2. Uh, we'll look at verses 13 to 20. And the reason that we're never off duty is because we have a dual citizenship. Uh, we have our citizenship in heaven, but then we are citizens to the country in which we live in. Now, Daniel is a model of how we should have the proper relationship with government. Uh, just to give you a little background, the Babylonians were given authority over the Jews because of the Jews' disobedience. Now, that's a mouthful what I just said. Now, I believe that we as a nation will become enslaved, not like the traditional use of the word, but become a victim of the government because we choose to disobey. If God is not your king, government will become your king. Daniel worked himself into the highest levels of this pagan and unbelieving government. Although the rulers respected Daniel's God, their lives and their actions didn't show they believed. Daniel served the king as a true servant. When he requested the wise men not to be executed for interpreting the the dream of the king, uh, Daniel steps in and he asked the king if he could interpret the dream and he does interpret the dream and, and God uses Daniel in a powerful way. Daniel, when he was in that royal court, when his three friends refused to bow down to the idol that was erected to King Nebuchadnezzar, and they were sentenced to death in that fiery furnace in Daniel chapter 3, their response was confidence and faith. They did not defend themselves, but instead told the king their God would save them, adding that even if he didn't, they would still not worship and serve Nebuchadnezzar's God. After the Medes and the uh, conquered Babylon, Daniel continued to serve faithfully, and he rose to power uh, within the government. Here, Daniel faced the same dilemma with the governors and the satraps that kicked the king into sign that decree. And if we look at the life of Daniel, Daniel responded directly. Daniel 6, 7 says that the petitions that said that any god or man for 30 days, they could not bow down before another God, except you, king, we're going to be cast into the den of lions. Well, Daniel responded directly, and in full view of everyone, he disobeyed the order. It says in Daniel 6.10, now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home, went into his upper room, with his windows open toward Jerusalem. He knelt down on his knees three times that day, and he prayed and gave thanks as was his custom since the early days. Another one of the things I loved about Daniel, we always sing, dare to be a Daniel, right? Dare to be a man of God, is that he didn't, uh, he didn't pick up the custom of praying 
when it was illegal, that was his custom. Uh, he was doing it prior to it being against the law, and by golly, he was going to continue to pray even after it was against the law. Daniel was completely loyal to any ruler uh, that was placed over him until that ruler asked him to disobey God. That's at the moment uh, when a choice had to be made between obeying the king of the earth or obeying God. Daniel chose God, as we should. In 1 Peter chapter 2, we have some insight into how we should be living as citizens. 1 Peter 2, beginning at verse number 13. For the Lord's sake, submit to all human authority, whether the king as head of the state or the officials he has appointed. For the king has sent them to punish those who do wrong and to honor those who do right. It is God's will that you live honorable lives and that you should be silencing the ignorant people who make foolish accusations against you. For you are free, yet you are God's slaves. So don't use your freedom as an exercise to do evil. Respect everyone, love the family of believers, fear God and respect the king. You who are slaves must submit to your masters with all respect. Do what they tell you to do not only if they are kind and reasonable, but even if they are cruel. For God is pleased when, conscious of his will, you patiently endure unjust treatment. Of course, you'll get no credit for being patient if you are beaten for doing wrong. But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it patiently, God is pleased with you. Well, we learn from this passage that we honor God by honoring and submitting human authority, the Christian duty. It's the smart and the right thing to do. So first of all, we learn that we honor God and we submit to authority. Now, Peter is not the only one to weigh in on this. Paul weighs in on this in Romans chapter 13, and he says, Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except that which God has established. And Paul goes on to say that the authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will be bringing judgment upon themselves. Pay to all what is owed. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed honor to whom honor is owed. So here Paul and Peter agree that we're to honor God, we're to submit to authority. You know, Christians have a history of obeying those who are in authority over us. Now, as we look at this, it's not that we always obey and always honor. We honor and obey except when there's a conflict between what God requires us to do if it conflicts with what government requires us to do. I was reading an article entitled, 2,000 Years of Christians and Epidemics. And two of Jesus' most famous teachings are, love your neighbor as you love yourself, greater love is no man than this, that he should lay down his life for his friends, and then the essential to honor God, to obey God with all your heart, soul, mind, and heart. So as we look at these teachings, Here's a brief overview of Christians' responses to pandemics. 
As all historians attest, Europe's first hospitals were built by the early Christians. The purpose of these European hospitals built by Christians was to provide care during times of plague on the understanding that the negligence that spread disease further was, in fact, murder. In other words, Christian says, we're going to build these hospitals and they're going to care for people in the times of plagues or pandemics because to not do so would be an act of murder. Uh, So there was the plague during the second century uh, that killed off 25% of the Roman Empire. Christians cared for the victims and offered spiritual modeling during the midst of the plagues. During another plague in the 4th century, there was a pagan Roman emperor, Julian, who complained about the Galileans taking care of people who did not agree with their beliefs. Church historian tell us that Christians, uh, they would do good, and uh, they would not merely just for their own household, that they would do good for the households of those in whom they disagreed. Uh, We could go on and on. Uh, As we look at the bubonic plague, 1527, when the bubonic plague reached Wittenberg, Germany, Martin Luther did not flee the city, like many did, but stayed to minister to his fellow citizens. His daughter Elizabeth soon died from the disease. In a tract entitled, Whether Christians Should Flee the Plague, Luther wrote, We die at our post. Christian doctors cannot abandon their hospitals. Christian governors cannot flee their districts. Christian pastors cannot abandon their congregations. The plague does not dissolve our duties. It turns them to crosses on which we must be prepared to die. Now you talk about a high level of commitment. Uh, There it is, that we are to honor God by reaching out and blessing others. We are to submit to authority. That is the Christian's duty. Let me give you the second point. The Christian's duty is to free us from evil and to be a slave to God. We are set free. We're free from evil because we've been born again. We're no longer slaves of sin. Now we are slaves to God. The gift we receive and so, and it is wonderful joy that we have, is to understand that now we have been set free from sin. Romans 6.22. We have become slaves of God. The benefit you reap leads to holiness. The result is eternal life. Paul said to young Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, First of all, then, I urge you that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for the kings who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and a quiet life, a godly life, and a dignified life in every way. This is good and is pleasing in the sight of God. So we are to honor those who are in authority. We're to flee from evil because we are slaves of God. And then number three, we are to respect everyone and to love the believers. Even those that we disagree with, there's a certain level of respect that we have for them. Although we may not experience that respect from them, we are told to be devoted to one another in love. 
honor one another above yourselves. The Christian's duty also involves honoring our employer. We're to submit to the good employer and the harsh employer. John Maxwell said this, the greatest day in your life and mine is when we take total responsibility for our attitudes. That's the day we truly grow up. Paul gives us some really harsh language in Ephesians chapter 6. He says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would with Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he's slave or free, masters do the same to them. And stop your threatening, knowing that he is both the master of yours in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. So this is a tough passage, isn't it? When we look at this passage. Now, Paul is not condoning slavery as we know slavery and in our nation. What he is doing is explaining that when you find yourself in a situation, you're to obey your earthly masters, those who God has placed in authority over you. Uh, So I guess the application we could say in our lives is that God places people over us. God places pastors over churches. God places fathers over families. God places bosses over their employees. And so as we understand this, God places government over us, that we have a a level of responsibility uh, to obey them. And Paul says, with fear and trembling and with a sincere heart. Uh, So it's not only that we're doing what we're supposed to be doing, we're doing it with genuineness of our hearts, as you would to Christ. Now, Christ never forces us to obey him, never forces us to follow him, but if we love him, we willingly follow him. Paul says, not with eye service. In other words, I'm not going to just do what my boss tells me to do when my boss is around, when he sees me, uh, but I do it even when he doesn't see me. I'm not doing it to be a people pleaser. I'm not buttering myself up to the boss, right? I'm not trying to flatter him, but I'm a servant of Christ. Doing this from the heart, because my heart is different. I realize that as I am serving my employer, I am doing it out of a heart that God has given me. It is part of my Christian duty. It is part of my ministry. You know, you have a wonderful ministry at work. Uh, So as Christians, we ought to be the hardest working people at our jobs. Our boss ought to look at us and say, man, those Christians, I don't necessarily agree with them, but they are hardworking. They are good for the company. They're good for the organization. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, that you receive back from the Lord. You may be saying, well, my boss hasn't given me the raise that I think I deserve. Listen, the goodness that you receive back is from the Lord. God would repay you. God has no partiality with how he treats people. So as we think about this, there is our duty and there is government's duty. God has placed us in a position that government is given the responsibility to punish and protect from evil. Now, as I read this passage in Romans chapter 13, uh, you may be scratching your head a little bit and says, well, 
I don't see this happening necessarily in our government. But I want you to know that this is how God has planned it. Romans 13, 3 to 5. Rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. So rulers are to punish evil. You should be fearful if you do the right thing. Unfortunately, sometimes governments get misconstrued and they get off track. Paul says, do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good and you'll have the praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good, but if you do what is evil, then be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. Government doesn't bear the sword for nothing. It is a minister of God, the avenger who brings wrath on one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. So Paul outlines here, that government should be set up to punish evil and uh, to protect us from evil. But government also should be set up to honor and to serve and to promote righteousness. Psalm 9, 7 through 8, the Lord abides forever. He has established his throne for judgment. He will judge the world in righteousness. He will execute judgment for the people with equity. Here we discover that God is the one who will ultimately intervene when a government goes astray. He abides forever. Governments will come and go, but God abides forever. And he will execute judgment on those who don't judge well. Acts 5.29, when government gets off track, Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than man. As we look at these dictates of government, the remaining time that I have left in the broadcast today, I want to bring us back in history to the founding of our nation. You know, America had 56 men who signed the Declaration of Independence. The Book of Proverbs says that righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to all people. I'm praying that God would send revival to the churches across America and that God will bring about a spiritual awakening to our nation. As we look at the founding of our nation, I'm praying that we will go back to the understanding of where we began as a nation. Americans, you know, uh, the 56 men who signed the Declaration of Independence on that 4th of July, uh, you know, they were risking everything, don't you? They actually signed it on July 2nd. It didn't get publicized till July 4th. These men knew if they won the war with Britain, that there was still going to be years of hardship for our struggling nation. They also knew that if they lost, they would face a hangman's noose. And yet, there is where it says, these men says, we herewith pledge our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. They signed. But did you know that they paid a price? When Carter Braxton of Virginia signed the Declaration of Independence, he was a wealthy planter, a wealthy trader. But after signing the Declaration of Independence, he saw his ships swept away. He saw his debts mount. He lost his home. He lost all of his property. 
He died in rags. There's another guy who signed the Declaration of Independence. It was really a pledge to pledge their fortunes and their lives in their sacred honor. A guy by the name of Thomas Lynch Jr. Uh, he was the third generation of rice growers, and he was a, an aristocrat. He had a large plantation. But after he signed the Declaration, his health fla- failed. Uh, with his wife, set out for France to regain his failing health. Their ship never made it to France. He was never heard from again. These mighty men pledged their fortunes and their lives and their sacred honor. I would to God we'd have men do the same thing. These men who signed the Declaration of Independence understood there would probably be a high price to pay. Thomas McCann of Delaware, was harassed. In fact, he was so harassed by the enemy that he was forced to move his family five times in five months. He served Congress without pay. His family died in poverty while they were hiding. Vandals looted the properties of Ellery and Clymer and in Hale and, and Gwinnett and Walton and Hayward and uh, the Rutledge and the Middleton and Thomas Nelson Jr. of Virginia, Nelson County, Virginia is named after him, raised $2 million of his own money uh, and, and he signed for the provision of the Allies, uh, the French fleet. After the war, he personally paid back the loans, wiping out his entire estate. He was never reimbursed by the government. And in the final battle for Yorktown, he, Nelson, urged General Washington to fire on his his own home, then occupied by Cornwallis. Thomas Nelson Jr. died bankrupt. But Thomas Nelson Jr. had pledged his life, his fortune, and his sacred honor. When the Haitians seized the home of Francis Hopkins, Hopkinson of New Jersey. Francis Lewis had his home and everything destroyed. His wife was imprisoned. Uh, She died after being incarcerated for just a few months. Richard Stockton, who signed the Declaration of Independence, pledging his life and his very fortune, was captured, mistreated, and his health was broken to the extent that he died at age 51. His entire estate was pillaged. Thomas Hayward Jr. was captured when Charleston fell. John Hart was driven from his wife's bedside while she was dying. Their 13 children fled for their lives in all different directions. His fields and his gristmill were laid waste. For more than a year, he lived in the forests and the caves and returned home after the war to find his wife dead and his children gone, his properties gone. He died a few weeks later of exhaustion and a broken heart. Lewis Morris saw his land destroyed, his family scattered. Philip Livingston died with a few months of hardships of war. John Hancock, history remembers best due to a quirk of fate, that great sweeping signature attesting to his, his vanity, 
uh, towers over all the other signatures on the Declaration of Independence. He was one of the wealthiest men in New England. He stood outside Boston one terrible night in the war and said, Burn Boston, though it makes John Hancock a beggar if the public good requires it. He too lived up to the pledge. Of the 56 signers of the Declaration, few were to live long. Five were captured by the British and tortured before they died. Twelve had their homes from Rhode Island to Charleston sacked and looted, occupied by the enemy and burned. Two of them lost their sons in the army. One had two sons captured. Nine of the 56 died in the war from its hardships. As we look at the Declaration of Independence, these men were men of means. They were rich men, most of them who enjoyed a life of ease, but they gave over their prosperity for the freedom that was born. When I think about the cost that they paid, our Constitution was made, according to John Adams, only for a moral and a religious people. It is wholly inadequate to govern those of others. I want to pray that our nation will come back to God. Lord, bring us back to you. Send a great revival and a spiritual awakening so we may get back to the foundation of our nation. If you'd like to hear this broadcast again, you can have a free download at buzzsprout.com backslash 1890557, or you can listen on Amazon, Spotify, Google Podcast, and Apple Podcast. Hickory Ridge Community Church is located at 3320 Battlefield Boulevard South in Chesapeake, Virginia. Sunday service times are 9 a.m. and 1030 a.m. We'd love for you to join us. For more information, go to hrcc7.org. And remember, no matter what you're going through, in Jesus Christ, there is always hope for your heart.